Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, I think we will begin. Uh, I know that we, we are, our numbers are a little dwindled. One is that uh, the church service was late, and I timed it, and we could have been done in an hour if we just didn't have a sermon. So that, that was the problem. Uh, we'll, we'll change that next time, right? Um, and then they're doing family Sunday school, so some of the parents are with their children. And uh, a few people talked to me, they said they're traveling. So again, uh, technology-wise, I know that we're all at different levels, but if you go on our website, stpaulslutheran.net, you click on the Bible study, it's one of the big menu items. You can get the the handouts, uh, I have them saved there. You can click on them, download them, print them off at home. Uh, and then below the handouts, there's a, a section you can click and you can listen to the classes. The phones are talking to us. You can listen to the recordings of all the classes. All of the Acts classes are up there. Um, it's recording now. Yeah, I had a recording earlier, like our whole conversation about how you don't work. Yeah, that's that's there. Um, and uh, so you can just listen to it on the website. That's kind of the low-tech solution. But if you know how to use podcasting or want lessons in that, just talk to me sometime, not in class, uh, and I can show you how to do that as well, um, so that you can always kind of follow along with us. Today, we are going to uh, continue rolling along. We're going to, just like the last few classes, the heart of what we're covering is chapter 5, but we're going to do a little bit before and a little bit after chapter 5. Um, and when we get to the heart of it, uh, I'll, I'll talk about what I've written on the board. But before we get into that, there's a little piece of chapter 4 that we uh, kind of left for the beginning of this class. Uh, just like before, we left a little bit of chapter 2 when we were looking at chapters 3 and 4. And it's interesting that this little section that I uh, left for us actually has a lot of similarity to uh, chapter two. If this is a hard thing, sometimes you need to have like, I'm a proponent of having multiple Bibles. I have three Bibles up here before me right now. If I had a bigger podium, I would have more. Um, but what I want you to try to be able to do is if possible, uh, have open or accessible, be able to, I guess, flip back. Luke, or sorry, Luke, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And then what we're looking at is going to be Acts 4, 32 uh, through 37. But I just want you to kind of be able to, to look back and forth to all of those, to both of those sections, because those sections are very similar. Again, I think this is part of how Luke is, is writing a narrative. He is 
kind of going big picture and then he'll zoom in on an event and then he'll go back to big picture and zoom in on an event. So in Acts 2, 42 through 47, as you look there, that section kind of summarized what the church was like, what the first believers kind of did after Pentecost. And we talked about that. It's our uh, introduction to, to what a Christian community looks like, about how they learn together, how they shared their life together and showed that love that they had, um, how they proclaimed that message of Jesus and uh, that they distributed to the poor and uh, they worshiped together. All of those things are there kind of as a summary of this is just what standard life was like after Pentecost. And then Luke zooms in on this episode of what happened in worship one day when they're going to the temple, and then we learn about how the apostles are then going to be um, told to be quiet by the council, and they obviously are not going to do that. And then, now that we're back in Acts 4.32, we have that big picture again. And there's a lot of similarities between these two passages. So as we begin, kind of know that, that we're looking at the similarities. Somebody want to read out loud Acts 4, 32 through 37. I'm going to put the mute button on you, though. I do have that ability. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no need; there were no needy persons among them. <clears throat> For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Good, okay, so you've just heard that. Now if you are able to turn back again to Acts 2.42, you'll see that kind of the similarities. There are things that are not mentioned. It doesn't mean that those things did not happen. So for instance, we don't hear them specifically being devoted to the apostles' teaching. We certainly do hear about fellowship. There's not really anything about the breaking of bread and prayers. But that part about the signs and wonders being done by the apostles, um, that's, that's a part of it, right? Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So there's kind of that similarity there. But then that next part in Acts 2, where it talks about all of them, all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's really the point that Luke is now going to kind of tie into. So Again, this is just the general community there in Jerusalem. They're together, and he's already said this, but he's focusing in on it again because he wants to kind of look at a particular episode of what happens when they had all in common. Well, he also says, why did they have all things in common? 
They did this to help one another. So it talks about, again, their fellowship, their koinonia, the sharing that they had. If there were people who were poor and needy, they would be able to give to them. So people sold some of their own stuff, their own property, and would give it to the apostles. It talks about them laying it before the apostles' feet. This guy, Joseph, whom the apostles called Barnabas, they would sell their stuff and they would give it to the apostles to be able to distribute it to those who were in need. The, the orphan, the widow, you know, the, the types of people that they were always supposed to be caring for anyway. So between these two sections, we see that there's this common attitude that they have, that nobody's thinking about me, me, me. They're thinking about we, we, we. And that's not the little pig who's crying home. That's, they're thinking about the community and how they can be there and help one another. And this wasn't just in word, but it was in deed as well, because they did actually sell some of their own stuff in order to help one another. And they gave it especially to those who were in need. They didn't just, um, you know, put it in one common funds and nobody held any property. Uh, that's kind of like that ideal of communism. People still had possession of their own things. That's why they were able to sell it. But when there was a need, they're like, oh, well, I, I have something I can give to help that person. This is kind of a, a radical way of living. Now, to a lesser extent, we still try to do that as a community of faith. Um, I don't think you would say that we are maybe as tightly woven uh, and as generous as these people were, uh, but we do this, right? Um, there are many ways that we try to support the, the poor and needy in our own community. That is the community of faith. So if there are needs that people have, we try to help that. Food baskets would be one very specific way, but there are other kinds of ways that we do that as well. Sometimes when there are serious things that happen, like say somebody's house burns down, you know, we would probably tell the community and say, this person has a serious need. What can we do to try to help that? Now, it's not a constant thing that we do because when you think about it, we're a very blessed people. Uh, there are those that are living far from us who are in much worse circumstances than we are, that to them, the poor among us would still be considered wealthy. Um, so this doesn't seem to be maybe as strong, but I don't want to say that this isn't a part of our lives anymore. What usually becomes the question, though, is why is Luke telling us this? Why does he tell us this story about how they all sold their stuff and helped the poor and needy? Like, what's, what's the point of all of that? Is he giving us a prescription that we today must follow this same kind of model? Or is it a description of just what that first community was like? So is this something like a new command from God that we must do and we must live according to this? Or is it just a description 
of what's going on. And there are people that interpret this and look at this passage and come down on both sides of it. Those that would come on the more prescriptive side uh, are, are really those that would be strongly committed, you know, like, all right, everybody, let's see your paychecks. All right. How, how much are you blessed with? Because then we'll know who are the well-to-do, those that can help, and who are those that aren't so well-to-do. And those are the ones that we can take care of and look after. Um, there are some communities that would be very, very open and transparent. I don't know what the history at St. Paul's was, but I found that some Lutheran churches many, many years ago, they didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily open in this way, but that they would publish in their minutes or quarterly voters meeting, whatever, here's how much people in our church have given. Um, not as a way to, um, like, say these people are better Christians than others, but as a way for us to be accountable, right? As Christians, if you saw one of our brothers and sisters here doing heinous things to somebody else, like just being cruel and vindictive and mean, chances are you'd want to say something to that person and say, what, what did I just see there? What was going on? Because that was not cool. That, that is not how we should be treating one another. God has called us to love one another. And so we hold each other accountable to this life of faith and conduct. And giving, isn't that just another way? Now, we might think about our money different than we think about how we treat other people, but isn't it all connected to our heart? And isn't it all connected to our faith? I, I just have a couple quick yeah. stories about um, Mr. Buckman that passed. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was much younger that we were, they were trying to, I don't know, um, get some kind of money drive or something yeah. going. And out of his own pocket, mm-hmm. we had this big chicken dinner mm-hmm. for all of us, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff, which I thought was very impressive. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mother saying once that she kind of overheard um, Mrs. Buckman say that she sure hoped that, that there wasn't a big drive at church for something this year so that she could get a winter coat that year. Mm-hmm. And you got to understand these people had this very good, lucrative business. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean, it just, hearing his passing today and mm-hmm. talking about this just made me realize what a yeah. good steward he was yeah. and so many good examples. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that, that idea of, of giving as sacrifice for for again, our comfortable lives, giving is not a sacrifice, you know? It's just, it's it's a part of our life. It's hopefully something that we do. But, you know, to say, oh, I have this, I need this, I use this, but my brother or sister, like, they're in dire help, uh, dire need, and I I want to help them, and I want, I want to give in that way. Like, that's kind of what this is describing. And in that sense, again, I would hope that this is a model for us. Um, not in a, not again in the sense, I don't think, as prescriptive that, that we have to do this. Uh, Paul didn't go around, you know, forcing people to, to do this, but when he talked about giving, uh, to the Corinthians, like he used the Philippians as a great model. He says, I didn't, 
I didn't ask a lot from them. I paid for my own way. I didn't want to be a burden to them because we all know that in Macedonia, life is tough. They, they don't have a lot. But despite all of that, they gave me an offering to bring to the people back in Jerusalem. And they gave in sacrificial way, in ways that um, were not comfortable for them, but meant that they would go without something. And that's, that's, that's the heart of the gospel. See, this isn't a legalistic thing to be put in place and people should follow. Rather, it's something that once people have been touched by that gospel, by that wonderful message of God's great love and self-sacrifice, that they are able to know and trust if God can do that, why can't I do this? Why can't I give a little bit more as well? And I know that God will take care of me. Community, that, that common sharing, that's really what's being highlighted here. Again, it's, it's not aside from worship or any of those other parts of being the community. It's, we heard a story about what happened in worship. Now we're going to hear a story about what happens with their life together in sharing things. Um, so that's kind of the, the mindset that we have here when we go to this. Yeah. Do you think part of their motivation might have been, though, too, that they were expecting Christ to come back like a week from Tuesday? Um, that's possible. There were certainly some like that. I mean, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, you guys have become lazy because you think that Jesus is coming tomorrow, and so you're quitting your jobs and, you know, just hanging out. We don't know when he's going to come back. Be, yeah, yeah. Well, and no matter what, there there should have been that urgency, right? Because again, what's the big picture in the book of Acts? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So these guys can't just stay in Jerusalem. We're, we're going to find out that they don't. But that message does have to go out because they have some work to do. And it's not going to just happen if they stay here in one place. So as we begin this, this little section, again, to connect it to Acts 2, that this is just what life was like. I don't think it was forced. I think it was just this spontaneousness and the gospel was such a part of their life that hey, let's, let's have life together. Life together in worship, in learning, in evangelizing, and in being able to share with one another. So um, that's there, but why does he focus on this? Well, yeah. Of what they were, when they, what they received mm-hmm. Each other. Yeah. Well, yeah, so the apostles learned that even, bef- even before Pentecost, and so I'm sure that is part of the message. Remember, at Pentecost itself, it was kind of a built-in evangelism event, because people from all around the empire were in Jerusalem, because this was one of those high, holy, holy days, and then they would have left, right? And so just spontaneously, they're bringing that message out to those communities and the other parts of the empire. But, but, but Luke isn't going to 
follow all of those stories. He has a a plan in his story. And right now he's still focusing on what happened in those first weeks, months in Jerusalem itself. Um, and this happened. The why now is because Luke is going to tell us a specific story about something. And he ended with talking about this guy um, whom the apostles called Barnabas. His given name evidently was Joseph, though. Uh, this is a way that he's going to kind of leave a, a breadcrumb. If you've been through the book of Acts before, you know that Barnabas comes to be a kind of important player. He doesn't say anything more about Barnabas than this for right now, but he's going to pick up on him later. So again, a little bit of foreshadowing, planting a seed, and we're going to learn more about Barnabas. But right now, Barnabas is given as a good example. This is what this was like when he sold some of his land, his property, and then put the money before the apostles' feet and said, you know, give it to those who have need. On the other hand, there's a bad example. Again, big picture here, Luke is telling about how the word of the Lord grows. As Satan sees this happening, he's going to start his attacks. So Ananias and Sapphira. We're not going to read it verbatim here, but what's the gist of it? Ananias is going to be like Joseph, our man Barnabas, right? Oh, he gave? I, I, I can give something too. What was the problem, though, with Ananias and his gift? He kept some of it. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly the whole arrangements or what, what happened, but it, it becomes clear that it, he makes himself look like he was a big giver and, you know, sacrificial giver. He was giving until it hurt, but he held some of the proceeds of a sale back and kept it for himself. Did he tell anybody about that part, though? Okay, his wife, but otherwise it's kind of, you know, hush, hush. So he's confronted, and what happens in the confrontation? Yeah, yeah. So again, he's putting himself forward as one who he sold something and he gives it all to the people. And when he's asked about this, uh, he... He, he's going to kind of hide it. Um, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? And this is the why I think that having everything in common was not a law. It wasn't prescribed to them that you must do this because Peter says to him, nobody forced you to sell your property. You, you didn't have to do that. And even when you did it, you didn't have to give all of it. But again, we don't learn all the details, but it's pretty clear that however he gives it to the people, he makes it sound as though he's given them everything from the sale, but he held back part of it. Now, there would have been nothing wrong for him to do that if that's what he said. But again, somehow he conveys that this was everything and it wasn't. So he lied to Peter and to the apostles and to the whole community. And he puts himself forward as a hypocrite, basically, right? 
who says one thing and does another. He's presenting himself to be a guy just like Barnabas, but in reality, he wasn't. And Peter completely calls him out on this. And Satan is invoked in this, that you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. Consequence, he drops dead, right? Right there on the spot. Judgment. Now, God could do this at any time with any one of us, right? When we are, are guilty of sin, God has every right to judge right then and there. The vast majority of the time, like 99.99999, he doesn't do that. As we heard in our reading today, God in his forbearance, he, he holds back the punishment because Christ takes our punishment. Now, some people don't want Christ to take their punishment. They reject him and they, they keep the punishment for themselves and they will be judged if they don't have faith in Jesus. But, but most of the time, God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He is compassionate and merciful. But here in Ananias' case, it's instantaneous. He drops dead. Sapphira, his wife, she is coming before the apostles, and she has that chance to come clean and doesn't. She says, oh, no, I didn't know anything about this. We gave everything. And she, too, drops dead. Now, you got to imagine that this had to shake that community, you know. Um, are any of us here hypocrites ever? Are we sinners? Yes. So chances are we, we, we have been hypocritical. We have said that we are the people of God, and do we always live that? Unfortunately, no. Um, so why why isn't our end like Ananias and Sapphira's? Why why doesn't God do all of this to us as well? There's a te there's a case in the Old Testament. Uh, it's kind of obscure. Uh, it's a story of a guy named Achan, who at the time of Joshua and the uh, conquest to come into the land, the Promised Land, God gave him these very strict instructions that you're supposed to destroy everything and dedicate it to God, burn it all up, and say this is God's, because it was one. God did not want to see the Israelites become corrupted by the Canaanites. Um, it's, it's not just that the Canaanites were unbelievers and wicked. It's that he knew the Israelites were very foolish and weak, and they would succumb to the false religion around them if any of the Canaanites or their stuff stayed there. But it's also a part of God's provision. You don't need their stuff because I'm going to bless you in bigger and better ways. But the people didn't always follow those instructions. And there's this guy, Achan, who, after the destruction of one of the cities, keeps a little bit of it for himself. And all of a sudden, in the next battle, the Israelites were unable to conquer the city. And Joshua's like, what's up with that? I thought God had our back and we're supposed to do this. And God reveals that one of the people have been disobedient. And so Joshua has to, you know, figure all of this out. And there's this guy, Achan, who kept some of the conquest for himself. He wanted to enrich himself, and uh, he, is, he is judged there and uh, condemned to death. It's a really harsh story, but again, it's, it's a way to show that community 
that, that sin is a big deal, that disobeying God is a big deal, and that he doesn't take it lightly. But I also think that, that in the early days of God bringing together his people, he, he needs to show that sin matters, that what God does matters, and that trust in him is the only way. I'm reminded of an episode previous to that when all of the people around Mount Sinai, you know, they, they are there. They receive the Ten Commandments. They know exactly what God wants them to do. Uh, Moses goes back up to the mountain to, to receive a, a little bit more instruction, but he's up there a really long time and the people start to grow impatient. And so they make that golden calf and start to worship it. And God is going to judge those people. Uh, or maybe the episode of that happens in between the conquest and Mount Sinai, when God tells the people to send spies into the land, and the spies report back and say, wow, these people are big and strong and mighty, and their cities are really powerful and have big walls. And the people are like, oh, we can't do it. We can't do it. Um, and God says, fine, you're not going to go into the promised land. In 40 years, I'll send the next generation. That, that God is constantly showing the people that, that faith in him is the only way. And it happens like at these beginning points, right? Um, here at the beginning, as, as this church is being formed, they're impressed with how serious this really is. Uh, the, that's one way to think about it. So God is showing them how serious this is. The other thing is that Again, there's this battle between God and Satan. And Satan is now tried for the second time to find a way to undermine this community of faith. In the previous uh, section, we didn't see a full example of this, but we're going to very soon. Satan will attack the church through brute force, through persecution, that the, the apostles will be bossed around, they'll be thrown in prison, that their lives are going to be threatened. And Satan thinks that this can stop the word of the Lord from, from growing. And it, it doesn't, remember? The, the, the apostles don't really care what the earthly authorities can do because God is the ultimate authority. This is the second way. So Ananias and Sapphira are examples of people within the community. So the Sanhedrin, they're outside of the community of faith, but Sapphira and Ananias, they're, they're one of them. And what happens from the inside, they give an example of hypocrisy, of people who want to take care of themselves and line their own pocketbooks. And Satan will try to use this to stop the church. We're going to find out that it doesn't work, but they're gonna they're gonna do it. The last one, which uh, hopefully we'll get to at the very end of this class, we'll talk more about that, is distraction. Now you would think that this would be the best way to stop the church. Just start using that force and violence, and that will get rid of them. The only problem is that the early church they had a saying, and they said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church that they saw that the more that they were killed, that didn't stop the church from growing. It 
increased the growth because people saw there's somebody willing to die for this, to suffer for this. There must be something there. There must be something there. If they're ready to give their lives for it, well, I'm ready to live for that. But these other two, subversion and distraction, those can be pretty powerful ways to undermine what God is doing. God won't let that be the answer, but it it happens in our own world today. I mean, you can think about some of the moral problems that have been pointed out in Christian churches today, and those are our big attacks from the outside. You, You Christians are supposed to be this, you know, giving an immoral example, and then finding believers that don't measure up to that well, doesn't that undermine what you say? Isn't that hypocritical of you guys? Um, which always, it never gets us off the hook. I mean, we, we should repent of our sin, and that does do uh, great harm to the gospel. But we have to remember that what we proclaim as Christians is never our moral obedience, Our morality is not the means by which we are saved. We proclaim a gospel that in spite of the fact that we are a room full of hypocrites, there's always room for one more. That there's always room for more sinners in God's house. That is not a license to live that way, but it is the gospel for people like us who try as hard as we might will never equal up to to that standard because those that weigh some of these morality bombs uh, against the church if you hold them under the microscope it's not as if they are are an example of this no no one really is but satan satan does this his strategy is is there the response now of the church to this ananias and sapphira episode is kind of eye-opening so again He's going to continue. We're at uh, 30, uh, 12, sorry, 512. Luke says, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So um, that's that's kind of right there, right? Uh, we've talked about that in Acts 1 and 2 and 3. This is just a constant part of their life. They were all together in Solomon's portico. This is a picture of their worship life together. Solomon's portico. This is an area of the temple. This is where um, where Peter gave his message about that lame man in chapter three. So this seemed to be like a good place for them to kind of uh, all gather together. The temple was a large place. They knew, hey, we can meet in this place and we can keep doing what they did. But the next verse, it's especially the one I wanted to point out. None of the rest dared join them but the people held them in high esteem. So after the Ananias and Sapphira episode, nobody dared to join them. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why that is. Yeah, yeah. There, you you see what it's like living among these people. If if you if you're a bad person, you could drop dead at any moment. Um, again, the, the church, that community of faith there isn't going to spend a lot of time going back and, and talking about this episode with Ananias and Sapphira of, you know, the whole reason why they dropped dead isn't just because they're quote unquote bad people. 
it's because they did a very deliberate thing and planned and schemed and and showed themselves to be these deceitful people. Um, you know, this isn't uh, reckless uh, a, a, a reckless act. It was a, a planned one. But people were scared by that, and so you'd think. If God was really watching out for his church, maybe he'd let some of this stuff slide because it doesn't look very good in the press when one of your own gets taken down by you. It, it, it just it doesn't look good, and it didn't then. But then the next verse, or the next part of that verse, people held them in high esteem. That sounds rather positive. I wonder why that is. Yeah, this meant something to them. It, it wasn't just, you know, take it or leave it or do whatever you want, but they they kind of show themselves to be people who maybe they did know a little bit more about the Ananias and Sapphira episode, and they're like, those were not good people. And those kind of people, God holds them to account. That's That's actually kind of a, a good message that that God doesn't just say, yeah, do whatever you want, I'll sort it out later. But for sin, there is judgment, but there's also grace. Well, that's actually an interesting message. And so even though some were turned away and maybe like, oh, we're going to kind of just keep an eye on these people, but we're not going to join them. Um, they held them in high esteem. But then more than ever, Verse 14, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So in the end, did Satan's attack work? Ananias and Sapphira, they're taken down. Some people were afraid of joining this crowd. But then, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added. And it talks about them as a multitude, not, not just a few people. So the word of the Lord continues to grow. There's, there's going to be attacks of Satan against this church, but every time there's attack and it seems like, oof, that's how are you going to recover from that? How are things going to go well again? They recover in, in mighty and powerful ways. All right, the next section is the third attack uh well it's it's a it's it's a third attack but it's really a more forceful attack that satan had already done before so earlier satan uh brings in the sanhedrin this council of jews and they try to get the apostles to be quiet but remember there's this healed lame man um and the resurrection of jesus and the sanhedrin can't shut up either of those messages because they don't have any evidence to the contrary. In fact, the evidence that proves the apostles are right in preaching and teaching what they are preaching and teaching is right there before them, an empty tomb and a healed man. So the only thing that they can kind of come up with is, well, would you just please not proclaim this message anymore? They don't do it. But now, with a multitude of people following the apostles, where? Inside the temple itself, the council, that is people who are connected with the high priest in making sure that the temple is, is orderly run, they can't ignore this anymore. They can't ignore the apostles because they're becoming a crowd that's growing and growing and 
people are maybe asking more and more questions. And so they need to do something. So what do they do? They arrest them. They're going to try to um, have a trial. The trial doesn't work so well because when they go to get them in prison, they're not there. Where are those guys? We put them in prison last night. Oh, they're in the temple telling others about this Jesus. Like you, you, got, you just have to laugh at what God is doing here because not even the Sanhedrin realize that these guys aren't in prison anymore. They send somebody to go get them so that they could have this trial and they weren't even there. So they go, they get them from the temple, they have this trial. And again, there's really not much to, to say or do here because in the end, the strategy of Satan they just want these guys to stop doing this. Stop spreading this word about Jesus. This, this gospel that, that you are proclaiming, that has to stop. We've told you again and again, don't do it, don't do it, but you're not stopping and it's only getting worse. So I don't see any other solution here other than that you guys must die. Now, technically, the, this council did not have the authority to put anyone to death. Because the Jews were part of the Roman Empire, the Romans gave them a little bit of control of their own matters because the Romans figured out, after a few bad examples, that it's just better that way. But if they acted up, the Romans always held that thread, uh, we could take over. So Pontius Pilate was a part of the story of Jesus' crucifixion because they wanted Jesus dead. Well, they could not do that themselves. They had to get permission from the Roman government and the Roman official, that was Pontius Pilate, in order to put Jesus to death. And if the same thing is going to happen here, if they want to do it legally, they're not going to be able to kill the apostles themselves. They, they are going to have to get permission of the Roman government and the Roman government will have to do it. Now, according to Jewish laws, they can stone people, but again, technically, that's illegal. That's them showing that their justice and their laws are more important than the Roman system. Roman has a, the Romans have a system of justice, and this wasn't it. So they're ready to kill the apostles, but then there's this member of the council who's this guy named Gamaliel, breadcrumb. He's going to pop into the story later. But for right now, what do we know about him? He's a Pharisee. So he's not part of the Sadducees. In the gospel, it seems like the Pharisees are very often the enemies of Jesus and the Sadducees come in. But in the book of Acts, it's really the Sadducees who are the stronger opponents against the early church. Um, there's probably a couple of different reasons. One of them is that the early church's biggest message was about the resurrection. The Pharisees didn't have a problem with a message about a resurrection. They might have problems about Jesus, but resurrection, they were okay with that. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they did not believe in a resurrection. And so to teach it was, at best, foolishness, at worst, heresy. And it needed to be stomped out. But the council is made up of all of these factions. And so while some are ready to push for Jesus' death, there's this guy named Gamaliel. And he shows himself to be a practical guy. 
You know, there are some people who are in politics to die to their own party. They would never vote for anything that the other party wants to do. But then there are people who like, if voting for this would provide peace or would give me something, I'm, I'm willing to, to work with that. Gamaliel's the guy who's trying to form a coalition, and he's a guy who's thinking about our future. So what's the best thing we can do in this circumstance? Well, guess what? Jesus is not the first guy who's run around to claim to be someone important. There have been other episodes of people who have attracted a crowd to them and claimed that, that they were important, that they were a messiah or a liberator or a deliverer. And so Gamaliel says, this is the first time we've dealt with this kind of stuff. There is this uh, episode in the past of this guy named Judas, not, not our Judas, one of the uh, uh, disciples, but of another guy. There was this episode with this guy named Thutis. And do you remember what happened in both cases? Yeah, they attracted a crowd. Yeah, we were scared. But when those guys died, the crowd eventually scattered because they realized that they had, they had no hope in this person. They're dead party's over, let's all go home. Um, and now there's these people. If we start killing them, do you think that's going to make things worse for us or better? Wouldn't it be better just to let this thing kind of play out? Again, we don't know, Luke does not tell us the timeline. How long is this after Pentecost now? Is it the next week? Is it a couple of months? Six months? Luke doesn't tell us that, but Gamaliel's willing to be a little bit more patient. Now, to the rest of the people on the council, they're seeing the numbers are growing and growing, but Gamaliel's like, let's just see it play out. Maybe he's thinking about the Sapphira and Ananias episode, right? Like, look at these people. They, their own numbers are dropping dead. They, they can't they can't really come together. This just won't work. So let's let them go. It's not, I don't think, that Gamaliel was a convert to the faith, that like he believed this. We'll find out why I think that a little bit later. Um, but he's just a practical guy. And this is the best course of action. Let him go this will all take care of itself. But he says these really interesting things at the end, doesn't he? He says at the end of his speech, if this is from God, can we stop it? No. I don't think, again, this is, this is my opinion, I don't think, again, Gamaliel is a Christian and he's saying, this is from God, we can't stop it. He's just kind of, look, if, if God's behind this, humans aren't going to be able to do anything. But more likely than not, God isn't behind it, and it'll just kind of fall apart on its own. That's history. History is examples of the rise and fall of many people, many nations, many groups, and we just need to be more patient. Because the flip side of it, what happens if they kill the apostles? Well, it may get rid of the church. It may start more people to follow the faith. Again, because if people see somebody's willing to die for this, they might realize how important and special this is. But that's all in this world. In the political world, they're in danger of creating more turmoil and more riots in the city of Jerusalem 
and the Romans are always looking over their shoulder. If things get out of hand, the Roman army will come in and make sure that there is peace, and you won't like the terms of the Romans' arrangements. So I think Gamaliel's also kind of thinking about that, and he's willing to just accept a few losses to know that this is the best, most practical solution, and in the end, his position wins. So they're, they're willing to do that. Now, the last part, again, this is kind of the, uh, it seems like it's disconnected, but after this, okay, so this, I, I, I guess I should say this. They didn't just leave the, the apostles go, right? They did what to them? They beat them, they flogged them. And again, knowing who's doing this, it probably wasn't just, it was mean, vindictive, the, the kind of thing that it's going to leave its marks. So were they persecuted in the sense of their lives taken? No, but they were physically attacked um, by the council and given this punishment. And you'd think that this would kind of be the end, but they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Strike two, Satan. These two attempts aren't working. I am going to stop there. I didn't finish the lesson that I wanted to. I wanted to get to the third episode as well in chapter six, but we'll get to that next time. We'll cover uh, a little bit more territory. We're going to especially focus in on Stephen and his story. We had talked about the whole spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, for all, for all of these people, um, the, the word came before baptism, but they, they were never saying, don't get baptized, then afterwards, part of the Great Commission. Yeah, absolutely. We're on the same page there. Yeah. The Holy Spirit works through the word and the sacraments, not, not an either or thing. All right. So next time we'll cover the Stephen. We'll cover the, the last strategy of Satan and see how futile it is. Or is it? Does, does it really work? Is he going to be able to stop the growth of the church? Remember, big picture. We're, it seems like we're spending a lot of time in Jerusalem, but after this, we'll move out and see that the word is growing, not just in this place, but outside the community as well. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.